And uh, Peter Williams is going to be talking to that. Peter, fresh from a lecturing tour of Serbia and Montenegro, and is suffering from too many coach journeys, uh, too many plane rides, and uh, can't move his neck. So, suffering Peter this evening. Followed by uh, Peter May is going to be talking to us about animal suffering. So, first Peter. Please. First Peter, yes. And then, and then second Peter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very biblical of us. Uh, so, um, this is Stephen Law. He's an atheist uh, British philosopher, and he published a, a paper some years ago called The Evil God Challenge, and uh, he uh, summarises it this way. He says, the challenge is to explain why the hypothesis that, that there exists an omnipotent, omniscient, and all-good God should be considered significantly more reasonable than the hypothesis that there exists an omnipotent, omniscient, and all-evil God. Um, boiling it down, in other words, um, why should we think it's more reasonable to believe that God's good than that God's bad? And that there is some challenge to theistic belief uh, in here. Uh, it'll take a little while to uh, gradually build up the points that he does in his paper. But if you want to sort of explore this in dialogue form, um, Stephen Law used this argument as the, the sort of central plank uh, of his uh, debate with William Lane Craig uh, last year on the Reasonable Faith Tour, and you can find video of that debate from London on the uccfbthinking.org website or Craig's own reasonablefaith.org website, and you can see how uh, Craig and Law uh, hash that issue out between them. Um, Law, in his paper, uh, sort of puts in a few... um, basic starting points before he actually gets to the evil God challenge. He has to sort of lay the table uh, before putting the meal out on it. So I'll follow uh, basically the structure of his original paper on this. He starts out by pointing out that most of the popular arguments for the existence of God uh, fail to provide much clue as to God's moral character. So, for example, if you look at the uh, the various cosmological arguments, uh, one of which we looked at the other week, uh, for God as the cause of the universe. Well, that argument doesn't uh, contain anything in the conclusion about God's moral character, or similarly, design arguments. We looked at the fine-tuning argument the other week. Um, that argument, as David Hume long ago pointed out, uh, doesn't give you very much basis upon which to say anything um, positive or negative about God's moral character. Uh, so, as Law says, suppose, for example, the universe shows clear evidence of having been designed... To conclude solely on that basis that the designer is supremely benevolent would be about as unjustified as it would be to conclude that he was supremely malevolent. This kind of argument gives you just as much reason to think that God's bad as that he's good. Uh, Well, as Craig points out, I'm not going to follow him all the way through here, but I've dropped a few remarks in. Uh, He says, uh, precisely because arguments like the cosmological and teleological, the design arguments, say little or nothing about the moral character of the creator or designer, that means they're immune to the atheist's most important argument, uh, the problem of evil and suffering. To raise the problem of evil and suffering doesn't do anything 
to lessen the likelihood of the conclusion of the cosmological or design arguments, precisely because those are not arguments for thinking that God has a particular moral nature. Those arguments are therefore powerful components of the, the cumulative the accumulation of evidences for theism, and can't just be ignored. What Stephen Law seemed to do in his debate last year with Craig was put forward his evil God argument and then ignore all of the other arguments for God if they didn't have anything immediately to do with God's moral character. So Law says that critics might add there's ample empirical evidence against the existence of a supremely benevolent being, by invoking the evidential problem of evil. Well, I'd say, sure, critics might do that, but notice the problem of evil is not an argument for atheism, nor is it an argument for a naturalistic worldview. Rather, it's an argument over the character of the creator. Law says that faced with this objection, the uh, problem of evil, theists who believe in a good God might... First of all, they might suggest we possess good arguments for believing that not only is there a creator, but he does have these moral properties that we want to ascribe to him. Or B, they might also suggest that the problem of evil can be met with some kind of theodicy or some sort of uh, defense or explanation as to how come a good God would allow the evil that we see in the world. But of course, he says, theodicies have been challenged, I too intend to challenge them by means of an an analogy. And here he's starting to build up to bringing in his evil God challenge. So he introduces what he calls the evil God hypothesis. Suppose the universe has a creator, omnipotent, omniscient, so on, but suppose he's not maximally good. Rather, imagine that he's maximally evil. His depravity is without limit. His cruelty knows no bounds. There is uh, no other God or God's just this supremely wicked being. Call this the evil God hypothesis. Well, at that stage, uh, an immediate worry comes in about the metaphysics of value. Um, Something particularly discussed in the tradition of scholastic philosophy, this, but... The evil God hypothesis just seems to ignore the debate in the metaphysics of value, where the traditional view has been that evil is by its very nature something that's parasitic upon goodness, such that uh, it's possible for something to be wholly or entirely good, but not actually possible for something to be wholly or entirely evil because evil is parasitic upon goodness. Therefore, the idea of of a, a maximally evil being, that is a being who is only entirely and wholly evil, as a sort of equal and opposite sort of mirror image of a god who is maximally good, wholly and only good, which Law wants to sort of hold up these two images, a bit like the sort of yin yang idea of light and dark and good and e- evil as equal and opposite things. But if this metaphysical tradition of, treat- of treating goodness as more metaphysically fundamental than evil, because evil has to uh, depend upon even the goodness of being itself in order to exist, um, then 
that idea of a maximally evil God is actually by definition an incoherent one. Anyway, pressing on with Stephen Law's train of thought, he says, in their simplest versions, and I mean, why pick on the simplest versions, but anyway, most of the popular arguments for the existence of God fail to provide any clue to the creator's moral character, in which case, to the extent that they support the good God hypothesis, that is to say, not very much, so he says, um, they also support the evil God hypothesis, that is over against naturalism. But, I mean, how much of a significant or useful point is that for the naturalist or atheist? His strategy here isn't doing naturalism any favours. He's perhaps pointing to an issue uh, that there should be an important debate between people who believe in a good God and a bad God. But is he, therefore, doing his own atheistic or naturalistic worldview um, any uh, benefit? And then he brings in this analogy. So he thinks the evidential problem of evil mirrors the evidential problem of good. That is, if you believe in a maximally good God, of course you face the challenge of explaining why is there so much evil in the world. But if you believe in a maximally evil God, then you'd face the challenge of explaining why does the world contain so much good? And he sees these as sort of equal and opposite challenges to those two different views. But he admits prima facie, there's, on the face of it that is, there's not only very little reason to believe in an evil God hypothesis, but he reckons there's overwhelming evidence against it, because we consider what he calls the problem of good, decisive evidence against the existence of such a being. And you, whilst you could try and sort of mirror image the, the defences of God in the face of evil to make defences of the evil God in the face of good... Um, he thinks those reverse theodicies, as you might call them, are feeble and ineffective. So, and this is why I put this bit in bold, so why should we consider the standard theodicies in defence of a good God any more convincing? In terms of reasonableness, isn't there a broad sort of symmetry between the good God and the evil God hypothesis? And since he's arguing the evil God hypothesis is obviously loony, Therefore, that makes the good God hypothesis obviously loony as well. So he calls this uh, suggestion of symmetry the, the symmetry thesis and reckons here's the challenge. Until people who believe in God can provide good grounds for supposing that this symmetry thesis is false, they lack good grounds for supposing the good God hypothesis is any more reasonable than the evil God one and the latter, the evil God hypothesis, is very unreasonable indeed, surely, he says. Perhaps there are grounds for supposing the universe was created by an intelligent being. But at this point in time, the suggestion that this being is maximally good seems to me hardly more reasonable than the very unreasonable suggestion that he's maximally evil. So that's the evil God challenge. He sort of laid the table built up to putting this challenge before us. Again, another response that comes from Bill Craig is that Law does mistakenly seem to think that the theist arrives at the conclusion that the designer, the creator, and so on, is good by making some sort of inductive survey of the world's events, by looking at 
look at the, you know, the number of good things versus the number of bad things in the world. And that makes it much more likely than not that God's good rather than that God's the sort of evil God sort. But I don't think that's the sort of process that's going on in uh, theistic thought, really. In other words, law seems to make the following assumptions about how theists are thinking. First of all, we construct our competing explanatory hypotheses. Um, We could think that everything is explainable in terms of a good God. Or we could think, bad God. Uh, Then we conduct an empirical survey of reality. And we look around us, uh, including evidence for design, the evidence of the existence of good things and bad things in the world, miracle claims, purported religious experiences, whatever, stuff that all in there. And then, three, we infer the relative merits of our competing hypotheses on the basis of that empirical survey. And having assumed that, that that's the process that, that people are going through, then he makes a move that seems to me basically equivalent to arguing this, that since the belief that we're all in the matrix, you must all know about the film The Matrix, um, since the belief that we're in the matrix is just as compatible with our empirical survey as is belief in a genuine mind-independent physical universe that's really there rather than an illusion, these two hypotheses are symmetrical. And since believing that we're in the matrix is unreasonable, so belief in a mind-independent physical universe must be unreasonable. Seems to me the structure of the argument that he's working through, but you can kind of see that Well, actually, that doesn't work. Something's gone wrong in that process of thinking somewhere, hasn't it? I I try and explain, well, what is it that's gone wrong like this? Just as we actually proceed um, on the basis of what we might call properly basic beliefs, um, the principle that things should be taken to be the way they seem to us to be until we've got good reason for thinking we're mistaken, rather than automatically assuming we're mistaken until we get good reason for thinking that we're right. Because then, of course, you never could get good reason to think you're right because you'd always assume that you were mistaken in thinking you had a good reason to think you were right. <laughs> uh, so we, 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 we have this principle of trust or credulity, as Richard Swinburne talks about it, in the case of the mind-independent reality of chairs and tables and other people and things. Um, so in the case of belief in a good God... Uh, pointing out that if I was in the matrix, then all of my empirical experience would be identical, i.e. that the matrix and non-matrix hypotheses are symmetrical with respect to their consistency with empirical observation. Uh, Well, that doesn't do anything to undermine the rationality of my my properly basic belief in the mind-independent reality of tables and chairs. Likewise, arguing that if an evil god existed then surely it's just as plausible to think he might dupe me into thinking he's good for some evil purpose as to think that a good God might allow evil for some good purpose doesn't in any way undermine the rationality of a properly basic belief in a good God grounded, say, in religious experience. Indeed, in the footnotes of his paper, Law himself notes... I allow that considerations pertinent to reasonableness may include the fact that a belief is 
in the terminology of reformed epistemology, properly basic. But that's stuffed away in the footnotes, and he doesn't really make any more of it. So, when it comes to the world, so when it comes to God, first people begin, I think, often at least, from a properly basic belief, or a belief grounded in religious experience of various kinds, both private and public, um, that there exists a good God. And then the existence of evil is raised, or raises itself in one's mind, as a potential overriding defeater for belief in a good God. And then a theodicy is advanced to at least undercut, as an undercutting defeater for that proposed overriding defeater, and pointing out that the hypothesis of an evil God might defend itself against a parallel argument from good by employing a parallel anti-theodicy doesn't render theodicy impotent against the argument from evil or undermine the initial warrant of belief in a good God. In short, law assumes that the two types of theodicy, theodicy and anti-theodicy, are sufficiently analogous, although actually he admits they aren't completely parallel and that theodicy is stronger than uh, anti-theodicy, that anti-theodicy is a poor response to the argument from good and that the prior warrant of both types of God hypothesis is low to begin with. Well, I would respond that actually, as law admits, but even more so, I think, theodicy is stronger than anti-theodicy, too complicated to go into now. Uh, B, anti-theodicy does undercut much of the so-called argument from good that one might want to make. I think anti-theodicy makes a very different stab at rebutting that kind of argument. But that see a good God hypothesis has a higher prior warrant, initial warrant, than the evil God hypothesis, which Law himself admits has very little prior warrant, uh, and this on both evidential and non-evidential grounds. So yes, I do reject the symmetry thesis. The obvious thing to mention here, but I won't go into it very much, because it will probably open up into next week's talks, is the moral argument, uh, which can just as easily work from the existence of objective evil as from the existence of objective good. Um, Given that this premise, if God doesn't exist, that is a good God, if a good God doesn't exist, objective moral values don't exist, if that's true, and you think it's true that there's anything that's objectively evil then it would follow from those two that therefore a good God exists. And this is a, this is a, a, metaph- a metaphysical deduction, not an uh, inference from one's empirical experience of the, the number of particular good things or bad things in the world. It's an it's a ontological argument about the nature of goodness and the necessary prior conditions in one's worldview for the existence of such a thing. Um, Stephen Law does mention this and says this is probably the best response to his argument. Um, As a response to that, he brings in the famous uh, Yu Fitzroy dilemma from Plato. Is what's holy holy because the gods approve it, or do they approve it because it's holy? Um, In other words, while bringing God in to explain morality, doesn't that either make morality arbitrary, if you base it on God's will, or make God irrelevant to the matter. If it's not based on God's will, it's not based on God. But of course, that's a false dilemma. Um, Two minutes to go. That's a false dilemma. God's commands arbitrary, or is there some good standard, some standard of goodness independent of God's commands? 
Well, I would say, yes, there is a standard of goodness independent of God's commands, but that doesn't mean that the standard of goodness is independent of God. It's a false dilemma there. Um, The standard, one might say, is God's character, in line with which he issues his commands. So his commands issue from his character, uh, which is essential. Uh, As Craig put it, Plato himself saw the solution to this objection, split the horns of the dilemma, namely God is the good. The good is the, the moral nature of God himself. God's commandments aren't arbitrary, but they necessarily flow from from his nature. So, um, I'm going to skip those two, I think, to This, I agree with law that anti-theodicy is not strictly parallel to theodicy, but I disagree with him in thinking that anti-theodicy isn't a bust. I think that's a perfectly good move to make against the problem of good argument if it's just an inference from looking at good and bad things in the world. I think it's a much stronger argument to make the metaphysical moral argument um, that we just briefly looked at, and that means contra law, that the the lack of warrant that he admits for the belief in an evil God um, contrasts with the warrant for belief in a good God. So uh, that allows us to reject his uh, symmetry thesis that the whole thing hangs hangs on. There we go. I think I finished on the dot. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Peter. Some hard things in that. Plenty of time for some questions and to tease things out for Peter to find out a bit more about uh, what he means and to challenge what he's just said. Dan? Um, I, uh, I, I... You referenced the matrix sort of bit of that with yeah. um, saying that isn't it just the same as saying the matrix, you know, us being in the matrix and us being not in the matrix are equal possibilities. And I, it seems like that would be subject to Occam's razor, like quite obvious. Right. Not being in the matrix assumes that we can have this world. Being in the matrix assumes we can have this world and we're in a computer simulation. And it just seems with the evil god and good god hypotheses, mm. They're, they're on almost like a level playing field in terms of in terms of the assumptions that you've made there. Whereas with the matrix, mm. then you, it, it seems completely different. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point to raise, but I think it's not a point that Law raises in his argument. And the response I'm giving to Law's argument um, is that his what, what his the structure of his argument is that precisely that issue of the empirical survey of reality is equally consistent with both hypotheses. Uh, yeah, but he doesn't, you know, you're making then a further point about, well, is there another way of, of breaking the deadlock between the two? Um, I'm saying, well, yes, here's one way, here's the moral argument that breaks the deadlock. You're saying, well, here's another way, what about using Occam's razor um, to break the deadlock between the two? Um, well, obviously, you'd have to consider the moral argument alongside everything else in the explanatory adequacy part of the Occam's Razor application, um, aside from considering the issue about, well, um, is the very concept of the good God in some way metaphysically simpler than the concept of the evil God because of this, this issue of he assumes that good and evil are just sort of equal opposites rather than getting into that um, traditional view of the evil being parasitic upon good which would mean that the evil god hypothesis 
um, has to be the hypothesis that there's evil and good in the nature of God, which is two types of thing, rather than just goodness, only one type of thing, which you can have in the concept of a maximally good being on, on that tradition. So you might reply to the Occam's razor that way. So I think it's a great issue to raise up. I can see a number of ways of, of engaging with it, uh, but it's not really the, the drift of laws argument. Yeah. I have to admit to not entirely following that, <laughs> that argument. Um, it just seemed to me that uh, if we have a creator God, then the creation will, ma- will mirror his characteristics and reflect his you know, attributes. And since morality would need to be centred on God, then um, almost by definition, the goodness in the universe would mirror the goodness of God. And therefore, even if you had a completely anti-Semitic situation, mm. evil would actually be called good. And God would reflect those. Do you see what I'm saying? Right, yes, yes. So, it, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, this, this comes into uh, getting into what would the motives in creation for the bad God be? Presumably to inflict pain and suffering on us <laughs> in some way. And then uh, Stephen Law has a sort of, um, well, if you empirically, what about, you know, what about all the good in the world? As a sort of the problem of good, which you're sort of raising in a sense there, Law would say, ah, oh, yes, but we can give an anti-theodicity for that. You see, God wants to, uh, because he's evil and wants to really punish us and torture us, he wants to sort of build us up in false hope. <laughs> uh, so that when, when we're finally let down at the judgment day and we find that actually God is going to torture everybody for eternity and the, you know, um, it's all the worse because we thought that things were, were so you can give these sort of anti-theodicy explanations for why an evil God would allow goodness in his creation <laughs> that, that parallel I, I think significantly do parallel the kind of if, well, if you wanted to raise well you know what about tornadoes or whatever Christians saying well maybe there's a good re- God has a good reason for allowing that in order to accomplish some other end or what, or what have you and that's why he's saying that simply to look at the world and then draw an inference about the character of God in a sort of design argument kind of way to include the character of God in the conclusion of a sort of design argument doesn't get you very secure grounds for thinking that God's got a character that's either positive or negative because you could always mount some sort of epicycle explanation that would account for the data that you, you see. Yeah. Um, what's the source of this, this goodness, though? Is it, do you derive it from the properly basic belief in God? Because it seems that the mm. scholastic tradition you were referring to was succumbs kind of to a, a sort of a metaphysics of presence, um, which you know, sort of unconsciously biases existence over non-existence as being good, which I don't think is adequate grounds for a basis of, of good over even sort of thing. Um, so in that regard, I, I think it's an unwarranted um, assumption mm. to start with. Well, yes, okay, this is this is raising precisely this this issue of the, the medieval view. Um, that evil has to be parasitic upon goodness. I, I quite like the way that C.S. Lewis, um, who I'm oft quoting, uh, puts this when he talks about even, even in order to be evil, uh, Satan has to have certain good qualities. Um, so uh, one would argue that in, intelligence per se is, is greater than stupidity or lack of intelligence. It's a great-making property. It's a uh, sort of unwarranted bias. 
Why could intelligence not be used for the greater evil? Well, exactly. He says intelligence can be used for, um, but that is, um, even to do the evil, you have to have the intelligence um, to do the evil. Yeah, but that, that is a wholly bad thing. It's a powerful thing in a neutral sense, but it's definitely not a good thing if used for wholly bad reasons. Right. Therefore, it's... I think, again, you're biasing existence here. Yeah. So, and your question was about what, what's the source of saying, is there, is there a justification for that yeah, bias or, or not? It seems to rest on this uh, bias toward existence as being good, and that's the reason for what's good existence on. Yeah, so I, I think the reply to you is probably, yes, it rests on a properly basic belief in, in the goodness of certain things that we encounter and experience. There's no, there's, there's no need to, to have that assumption which is why he's comparing the, the two, the theodicy and the anti-theodicy mm. side by side. Well, yeah, but, yeah, then he'd have to go into that issue, but he doesn't, he doesn't even raise that issue in his paper, hence why not really gone into it, but, yeah, that's certainly a significant discussion to have in the area, yeah. I think we ought to move on from there, but yep. do, do grab Peter afterwards to tease a bit more out from him. Um, time for a refill with teas and coffees and catering.